The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 9 down through the end of the chapter. And then we'll pray as we begin our time in the Word this morning. Give you just a second to get there. If you will, look at verse 9 together. Moses writes, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If you would, just bow your heads for a moment. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, but I want you to do something first this morning. I want you to take just a moment and ask the Lord to speak to you directly today. Ask Him to help you to see Him, to understand who He is this morning as we work through the text. We take just a moment in the silence and do that here before we begin. Lord Jesus, we are getting ready to embark on this story. We've been preparing for it now for weeks. We have been looking at this, trying to understand what it is you want us to see. And through it all, what we've learned is that ultimately this story is not about Noah. It's not about a flood. It's not about the ark. It's not about the animals. It's ultimately about you. It's designed to teach us something about you. And today, Father, that's what we want to learn. We we want to come here this morning to gather around your word and to learn about you, to see you in your glory, in your holiness, in all of these aspects of who you are and of what you're doing in this world. 
We are mortal. We are just mere men and women, finite in every way. And yet here we are gathered together around you, the infinite, awesome God of creation. Will you today, Father, help us to see you, to renew our vision of you, to to help us to fear you in the holy, reverent way that we should? Will you show us Jesus and grace and the mercy that was so freely bestowed on us on the cross and in the gospel? Will you help us, Lord, to see all of these things, to make ourselves nothing before you, and to simply revel in who you are this morning? Father, that is our desire. And I pray that you will take my weak, worthless words and yet use them to make your infinitely valuable word real in the heart of each and every person this morning. Help us to see you today, Father, we ask. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after three weeks of introduction, we are finally getting ready to begin this trek across this story, the story that's commonly known as the story of Noah's Ark or the story of Noah's Flood. We've taken three Sundays to introduce this. I hope it wasn't too much. I just felt that there was so much here that we needed to cover that there was no other way to do it. And so we've been working through these eight issues that I thought were necessary in order for us to have a right understanding of the story, what it's all about, why it's even here in this text. And and as we did so, I hope that you benefited from it. Uh, For the very last time, I believe, I'm going to cover those eight issues with you. I'm not going to keep rehashing these week in, week out, but since we just finished them last Sunday, I wanted to cover them one more time. If you weren't here for any of them or for all of them, please, I ask you, go online and listen uh, on our website. You'll hear them there. But let's just quickly review them. Number one was the issue of the triteness with which we often handle the flood story. And I said, because we're so familiar with it, we hardly give it any real thought anymore. We just treat it as if it is a myth or as if it is a a, a fairy tale or a bedtime story, even though we would say that it's not, and that would be the right thing to say. Second was the misinformation that's often associated with the flood story. We've let sources other than the scriptures inform our understanding, or lack thereof, of this story. And as a result, we don't even have a clear picture of of the content, of what it's actually saying. Uh, Third had to do with how we understand all the other flood stories that are out there. The flood is talked about in more places than just Genesis. And so how do we handle those things? What does that do with our faith? And, and I would argue that even, even if the flood story was, was written across the sky in blood, our faith is in the scriptures and in God's revealed truth to us. It doesn't matter about all these things. I'm happy they're there, but my faith isn't in them. My, my faith is in the scriptures. Number four was uh, in regards to all the various flood theories that are out there. And this is where a lot of people camp. This is where they want to talk about things at, at length and try to argue about this and that. What, what, how do you explain this? What do you do with this? And, you know, those are good and fine, and we need to be able to interact with those things. But ultimately, what's, what's really important in all those flood theories is what it, what it explains to us or shows to us about our own hearts, about the assumptions and presuppositions that we bring to this story That will interpret how we uh, understand the story almost more than anything else. The fifth issue was a review of our biblical commitments. And I gave you four biblical commitments that I think all of us need to have. Number one, that the scriptures are our ultimate authority. That this is the book upon which we base everything that we believe and every every aspect of our lives. Number two, that it's 100% true and reliable. 
I don't need to re-explain it or, or try to make sense out of it in, in this sense or that sense. I, I can take it as is. Number three, I said that we need to believe that the flood story was not written to answer all of our questions in order to give us nifty things to discuss. But number four, it was written ultimately to teach us something about who God is, about his character and his plan. And you can really see that fourth point in our sixth issue that we looked at last week, and that was the structure of Toledot 3. Again, that word Toledot there being the Hebrew word that begins each new story in Genesis. You'll see it this morning in a little bit. But even the way that, that Moses has structured the story is drawing our attention not to, to Noah, to the flood, to the ark, or all these other components. It's drawing our, our understanding to God. He wants us to know who God is, and so that's how he puts this story together. Number seven were the themes that are addressed and how it connects us back to the creation story and really to all of the biblical story as we look at this idea of chaos that he's going to bring upon the world and how he's going to recreate the world and how there'll be blessing afterwards, but it ends in failure, just like we saw in creation, like we saw in the fall, like we will see throughout human history until Jesus comes again. And then finally, the eighth issue had to do with the New Testament understanding of the flood story. We wanted to know how Jesus and the New Testament authors looked at the story because however they look at it, that's how we want to look at it. Whatever Jesus thinks of it, that's what I want to think of. And as you look across the New Testament at all of the references, and we'll get into this as time progresses through the story, as you look at all of it, four main things stood out to me. Number one was the reality of the story. They just accept it as true. So should we. Number two, they see it being about the character of God, no surprise. Number three, they use it to show us the importance of faith, particularly Noah responding to what God had told him. And then number four, Jesus uses it to explain the certainty of coming judgment, that it will come at the moment we don't expect. So there you go. Three weeks of messages in five minutes. You could have skipped the last three Sundays and gotten that, it would have been just fine. I hope there was more content in the last three weeks than what I just gave you right there. Now, how do we proceed from here? Okay, we've laid a foundation. I hope it's a good one. But how do we now turn from all of these things that we've been learning, that we've been trying to allow to influence our understanding of the story and actually apply it to the story itself as we work through it? Well, I gave some time to that, thinking through that over the past week or two, trying to figure out what we should do. And since Moses is writing to draw our attention to the character of God about his plan, who he is, how he acts in this world. It only seemed to make sense to me that we approach the actual text as we work through it verse by verse in the same way. That we're looking for things that teach us about the character of God. That we're not simply attempting to understand the story just for the story's sake, but that we're seeking to build a theology an understanding of who God is from what Moses has written, from the way he's laid this story out. It's very similar to the approach we took when we went through our very first story in Genesis, the creation story. As I tried to say, look, we're, we, don't, we don't want to get bogged down in all the details of this and that that people typically do. We want to see who God is. That's why he's writing this. He's writing to help us understand who God is. Let's, let's look at that. And I gave you a little parable Anybody happen to remember the parable I made up for you when we started the creation story? In case you weren't here, or in case you don't remember, I'll use it again because it applies. But there was once a a beautiful forest filled with tall, stately trees and and flowing streams and wide glens and, and bouncing animals. Everything was just happy and beautiful in this place. And people loved coming to this forest, walking through it, admiring its incredible beauty. Well, in time, as people had wandered through the forest, they made a path. 
And being the followers that we are, most people then who came through the forest began to follow that path as well. And in time, that path became a rut. And in time, that rut became a ditch. And before long, all people did was they just simply walked through the forest in the ditch, admiring nothing but the dirt walls on either side. Now, they would stop every now and then to argue about the identity of a particular root that was sticking out of the dirt wall. That's, a, that's the root of an oak tree, one would say. And the other one would say, no, 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 that's the root of a maple tree. And yet they never stopped to simply look up and see what kind of tree they were standing under, much less to ever stop and consider climbing out of the, out of the ditch just so they could enjoy the beauty of the forest again. No, they had been conditioned by a length of time and the guidance of others to be content just walking through the ditch, admiring the dirt walls instead of the beauty that, that God had made around them. Well, that little analogy is designed to draw our attention to the way we typically approach these stories. We have been conditioned by length of time and the guidance of others to look at these stories in a certain way only. To, to be sitting there focused on the details of the dirt and the strata and the rocks and the roots, and we want to see all these things, and we've forgotten to simply look up, to climb out of the ditch and enjoy the beauty that God is showing us here. This is so much bigger than what we've ever seen. This is about God himself. Why would we be content to stay in the ditch? <laughs> we want to climb out of that ditch. We want to see God for who he is. And so I'm going to attempt to do that over these next six sermons that I'm preaching. We're going to have a couple weeks off as we're going to have some guest speakers along the way. But over the next six messages, we are going to attempt to see the beauty of who God is here in the flood story, to build a theology of God from this text. And today we're going to be doing that here in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. So let's, let's jump in, look at these verses together, and see what we learn about God to begin with. In verses 9 to 10... Moses opens up this new story, and, and you'll see that he begins it in the typical way. He says, these are the generations of Noah. And as most of you know by now, that is our marker, that's our clue, that a new story is beginning. In Hebrew, this is one word, toledot, Noah. Okay, This is the story of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. This is the account of Noah. It's our marker that a new story is beginning. There's ten of these throughout the book. This new one is about this man Noah, and he gives us four details about who this man is. Number one, he tells us he's a righteous man. And it's important to stop here and to define exactly what we mean by this word righteous. Because in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes a statement about people being righteous that's kind of important. He says that how many people are righteous? None. Are you sure? Are you sure? Maybe one? Oh, no, not even one. No. No one's righteous. Not even one. Not even, not even Noah. But it says he's a righteous man. Is this contradicting what Paul says in Romans 3? No, it's not. You just simply need to understand the differences between how the New Testament writers use the word righteous and how the Old Testament writers use this word righteous. In the New Testament, the word righteous almost always, if not always, refers to one's standing in relation to God. So as I look at God being the standard, he's the standard of holiness, he's the standard of perfection, how many of us live up to that standard of righteousness? None. Not even one. No one makes it up to that level, so that in order for us to be saved, something has to happen, because if we're not perfect, if we're not righteous in God's eyes, we, we can't spend eternity with him. 
And of course, that's what the cross is all about. That on the cross, Jesus came and died, and God took our sins off of us, placed them onto Christ, and he took Christ's righteousness and gave it to us. So that now, when God sees us, he doesn't see us for the sin that that is rightfully ours. He sees us through the lens of Jesus. He sees us through the righteousness of Christ so that he can call us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. This is at the very heart of what salvation is all about, that we are righteous not on our own account, but on account of Jesus and what he's done for us. That's the only way we can be righteous. That's the only way we can meet up to God's standard. That's how the New Testament writers use this word. But in the Old Testament, the word righteous hardly ever, if ever, carries that same connotation. No, in the Old Testament, if you read that someone is righteous, it's generally talking about in relation to other people, not in relation to God. See, in relation to other people, Noah's a righteous man. He's not like them. In relation to God, guess what? He's a sinner. That, that's who he is in relation to God. But in relation to others, he, he's doing better than, than most of them. And I think you'll see that even more clearly here in the second statement about him. Number two, he says that he was blameless in his generation. And if all he had said here was that he was blameless, I think we'd be confused. If, if he had simply said, well, this guy is blameless, we'd be like, wow, he's sinless. He's righteous. He's sinless. He's going to say that he, he walks with God. This, this guy must have been perfect. But he adds a little qualifier here. Just to make sure that you don't misunderstand in, in what way to view him. He's blameless in his generation. Compared to everyone else in his generation, Noah's better than most. Compared to everyone else who's alive at that time, Noah's doing okay. He's not saying that he's sinless. He's just simply saying that he has not reached the level of wickedness that we're going to see surrounding him in the earth. Number three says that he walked with God. And of course, this takes us back to who in chapter five? To Enoch. In chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, Moses described Enoch as a man who walked with God. And when we were there, I explained to you that that phrase, walk with God, refers to one's or a life lived in, in fellowship with and dependence on the Lord. This is what Enoch was known for. He lived his everyday life in fellowship with and dependence on the Lord. Well, guess what? So did Noah. This is what characterizes him. This is a, this is a high accolade. When, when I say to you that you need to understand these other comments in relation to the people around him, not in relation to God, please understand I'm not taking anything away from Noah here. Noah is clearly different. And, and Moses is wanting you to see that. And so he uses these incredible accolades to refer to him. He's like Enoch. He walked with God. Number four, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these characters, of course, will become important later on in the story, and so Moses introduces us to them here. And you're going to find, just quick rabbit trail pause, you're going to find that's pretty typical of how Moses operates and how he writes in, in his book, that when a character is going to become important, or maybe a, a group of people are going to become important later on, he'll introduce them earlier and then come back to it when, when they come back up. So here he introduces us to these three boys, even though we're really not going to see what happens to them until the end of the story and really going into chapter 10. You'll see why that's important. But I'll just give you one other illustration just for illustration's sake. If you look at chapter 9, verse 18, 
Moses writes this, that the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you see this parentheses that our translators have put here to help us understand that this comment's kind of being interjected. He says, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, here's the question. Why does he want to mention Canaan at this point? He's not coming off the ark. Eight people went on, eight people came off. Why mention Canaan at this point? Well, the immediate answer is, is because in just a few verses, who's going to be cursed for, for looking, uh, because Ham looked on his father's nakedness? It's Canaan. Later, who is Israel going to attempt to dispossess of their land so that they can take over and punish for their wickedness? The Canaanites. And so here we have an example of Moses introducing a character to us now that becomes important later on. You see this as a regular feature. You see it here with the three boys that they're being introduced now. We won't deal with them more until we get closer to the end. Now, keep in mind that this is Moses' introduction to the story. He has given us his normal marker. He's introduced us to the main human character, to some of the supporting cast, and having introduced the story in the cast, he now begins to emphasize man's sinfulness. Look at verse 11. Notice that he writes, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. As if God had to confirm it. Here he's confirming it. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, if you look back to the first eight verses of chapter 6, you'll see even more details about what the earth was like before the flood. In verses 1 to 2, Moses wrote, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And I'm not going to rehash everything we looked at here, but this is the first indication given in the story that something's wrong. Remember that? This is the first thing that God sees that he responds to that either because of a sexual sin or maybe a relational sin or something even beyond that, they're doing things clearly in rebellion to the Lord. You see it more clearly in verse 5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you hear all the superlatives there? Every, only, continually. He's building this case that it is unimaginably bad. And so when you combine those thoughts with what we read here in verses 11 and 12, a picture begins to emerge of what life was like on the earth prior to the flood, either sexually or relationally or some other sense, man was in rebellion against God. His wickedness was great. In fact, every intention of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. The whole earth was corrupt. Everyone, except Noah, had corrupted their way, and the earth is filled with violence. Not violins. Violence. Important distinction. As I read these words and phrases that Moses uses to describe humankind before the flood, I get the sense that I cannot begin to imagine what this world was like. I I think that I, not think, I know that I, in my short lifetime, have never seen the world as bad as this. I mean, I think it's bad sometimes. I look at things and I go, how can it get any worse? (laughs) That's a very short-sighted comment to make. 
And I'm pretty sure that I could argue and argue well that no one in any time since this has ever seen the world as bad as this. You're like, no, that can't be true. I mean, just think back, like, you know, World War II and what the Nazis did and what Stalin did in Russia and all the violence that filled the earth then. Certainly that was as bad. And I'd say, no, I don't think so. Because at least when Hitler was doing all the things he was doing and Stalin was doing all the things that he was doing, at least there were some people who thought it was wrong. At least there were some people who were standing up to him trying to stop him. When I read the description of this world before the flood, it is clear that everyone is like this, except Noah. So everyone is wicked, except Noah. Everyone is violent, except Noah. Everyone is corrupt. The thoughts of every person's heart are evil. No one is standing up to anyone else or doing anything good because everyone is thoroughly wicked, except Noah. I can't imagine this world. I can't even begin to understand what's happening. I, I made a joke. I made a joke a few weeks ago about it being so bad that people were ripping the ears off of bunnies. Boy, did I hear it after that. From so many of you came to me like, that was nasty. Why would you say that? That was cruel. I was simply trying to come up with a silly way of helping you understand that things were pretty bad. I don't know if the bunnies were hurt or not. I'm just saying things were really, really bad. Far worse, I think, than anything any of us in this room can imagine. And so because of all of the sin that is on the earth, because of all the wickedness that is filling the earth, we see the statement that God's wrath is great. In verse 13, God gives his response to this overwhelming display of wickedness, of rebellion. He says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. In that statement, God is saying, I'm done. I'm done. It's over. I'm finished with these people. And notice the irony that he uses in this statement. Hey, they filled the earth with violence. I'm going to let the earth bring some violence on them. They think it's okay to do this to my creation. My creation will respond. I'm going to destroy them with the earth. I'm going to wipe them all out. God is angry with them. He is filled with wrath. And that is a term that, just like with the flood story in general, we we take very tritely as well. We've heard it so much, or maybe we've used it so much to say that God is angry, that God is filled with wrath, that we don't understand what that means anymore. We, we, We interpret it in relation to our own anger. Well, God must get angry like I get angry. No. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, my anger is often unjust. God's anger is always just. If he gets angry, it's because somebody deserves his anger. He never gets angry at innocent people. He's angry with people because they've wronged him. My anger is often connected to my selfishness. I get angry when something doesn't go my way, when the kids do something that inconveniences me. My anger is connected to my selfishness. God's anger is connected not to his selfishness, but to his holiness. Because he is perfectly holy. He is the standard of holiness. 
Anything that violates that causes his anger. My anger is sometimes directed at the wrong people and things. So one of you makes me mad today in the car, Jamie might get it. Or the kids might get it. I hope not. We'll try to be good. God's anger is never directed at the wrong people. He only directs it at the right people and the right things in the right ways. My anger can come and go with my emotions. So if I'm tired today and I didn't eat breakfast this morning and I'm just generally not feeling good, I'm quick-tempered. If I had a good morning and I'm, I'm all happy, then I'm not. My anger comes and goes with my emotions, fluctuates. God's anger is constantly consistent. I'm being redundant and repeating myself on purpose. He is constantly consistent with his character. It never changes. My anger often leads to nothing. I I hear something and I get angry about it. And what happens? Nothing. (laughs) I hear the news and I'm angry about something I heard and what changes in the world? Nothing. But God's anger always leads to something. When God is angry, he will act. It's guaranteed. Something will happen when God is angry. He will not sit on his anger forever. So when I say to you that God is angry here in Genesis 6, there is a real sense in which every single one of us need to become quiet and feel fear in response to this God who has the power and the authority to destroy us all. It's a sobering, sobering thought. And you can just see how terrible this is here in the story when God's wrath is in full display on these verses. He's going to kill everybody. Men, women, children. He's going to kill all the animals. Everyone and everything is going to die. This is how repugnant sin is to him. This is how far these people have gone. They have filled the whole earth with wickedness. And so he is going to cleanse the whole earth with a flood. Now, we're going to stop in the text right here. So We're not done, so don't pack up. We're going to stop in the text right here. We'll pick up in verse 14 next time. The reason I'm stopping us here is because at this moment, right now, A question, a major question is looming in front of us that we have to answer before we can go one step further in the story. And here it is. And no surprise, this question is one based on the character of God. Here's the question. Does God have the right to judge sinners and condemn them to death? Now notice how I've worded this question. Does he have the right to judge sinners and to condemn them to death. In other words, or maybe if I put it a little bit differently, is his wrath here really justified, or is he just being a big cosmic bully? Because that's how I think many people see him in this story. And this question is important because it cuts to the heart of what we really believe about who this God is. Many people, many, many people would look at this question and answer it with a no. That God does not have the right to judge sinners. That he does not have the right to condemn people to death. That this is an offensive concept to them. Just to call them sinners. Just what that word implies. That there is an absolute moral law that someone has the right to judge us on. Even that word alone is offensive. 
to many people. And so many people who claim to believe in God yet deny this, I can tell you, whatever God they believe in, it is not the God of the Scriptures. I can stand here and say that whether it offends us or not, whether we like it or not, the Scriptures are both clear and consistent that God does have the right to judge sinners, and He does have the right to condemn them to death. And the reason that He has this right is because of who He is. He's God. Do you understand what that means? He's God. He's the one who made this world. We learned that already. It belongs to him. He's the one who made all of us in his image and likeness so that we could know him and enjoy him and serve him forever. And therefore, he has the right to demand whatever he wants of us. That's his right because of who he is. And therefore, he gets to determine what's right and wrong what is acceptable and unacceptable, what he will allow and what he will forbid. He gets to set those moral laws in place and he gets to hold people accountable for them. He gets to determine whether or not we live up to his standard. Why? Because he's God. That's who he is. He is the center, not us. He is the one whose holiness is the standard, not ours. And everyone who is offended by God's right to judge them and to condemn them, they're, they're either ignorant of who he is or they have purposely chosen to suppress it, to ignore it, and to refuse it. God has the right to judge because he's the one who set the standard. He has the right to condemn because he is the one who, who was injured, who was rebelled against. Now, just to be clear, I know that these concepts can be hard for some people to accept. Because they read the story and they say, well, if God saved Noah, why didn't he save more? Why didn't he force people to get on the ark? Why didn't he come in and, and just zap them all and make them do what he wanted? They, they ask the same question about the gospel today. If, if, if you have to believe in Jesus, why doesn't, why doesn't he just save everybody? Why make it like this? Why not do it this way instead of that? They have all these questions and and while I respect the people and I respect the questions, I would humbly submit to you that they are asking the wrong question. Because the question here is not, why would God save some and condemn others? The question is, why would he save anybody? Because if I understand God and his holiness, and I understand man and my sinfulness, I don't understand why he saves any of us. And yet he does. Yet he does. And it takes me back to what Moses has already written about Noah here. And we've got to go back to verses 7 and 8 just for a moment because in verse 8 of chapter 6, it's probably the most beautiful comment that we have read to date in Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, after saying that he's going to destroy all life, Moses says this in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And if you'll recall, the word favor here is the Hebrew word for what? For grace. Noah found grace. You know what grace is, right? 
Grace is when you, you, you get what you don't deserve. That means that Noah deserved to drown. He deserved that. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why did he, why did he get grace Because in faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he placed all his hope and trust in God's words to him. He built an ark to save himself, his family, the animals, and he lived his everyday life in fellowship with and dependence on God all by faith. And because he believed, God showed him grace. You see, God hasn't changed at all, has he? He's the same today as he was then. And so for us in grace, what did he do? He sent his perfect, holy, righteous son to come to earth as a man, to live a perfect life on this earth, and yet to die on the cross. Why? For our sins. So I told you that when God is angry, something happens, right? He doesn't just wipe that clean. He's going to do something. So God is angry. He wanted to judge sin. He has to judge sin because that's who he is. That's what he does. And yet he wanted to forgive us. And so on the cross, what I said at the beginning, he took our sins and placed them on his son. And there on the cross, as Jesus bore our sins on his own head, God poured out the full measure of his wrath and anger and judgment on his son so that he didn't have to pour it on us. So that in the place of that, we could be given the righteousness of of Christ. And so now I stand here righteous by faith through grace. Not righteous just in relation to all of you. I don't know if I'd match up to that. I'm righteous in relation to God's holy standard because of Jesus That's the most wonderful truth the world has ever seen. And so here we are asking this question, does does God have the right to judge sinners and condemn them to death? And the answer is clear, yes, he does. That is an undeniable truth. But I stand here today with an even more wonderful truth and undeniable truth than that. That just as willing as he is to judge sinners and condemn them to death, he is willing to save, to forgive, to have mercy show grace to love us through his son to anyone and everyone who believes. If you will, bow your heads just for a moment. I don't care who you are, why you're here today. Every one of us in here needs to hear this, needs to remember this. If you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be rejoicing right now because just like Noah, you deserved death. And yet, you sit here, having placed your faith in Christ, you are now a recipient of his grace, of his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. Why? Do you deserve it? No, no, you don't deserve it. No one deserves grace. We deserved punishment. You should be rejoicing in your heart. You should be thanking God for what he's done for you in Christ. You should never, ever move away from that confidence. He loved you so much that even while you were still a sinner, he died for you. Thank him for that. And if you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand 
that this is the God of the universe. The one who has the right to judge. The one who has the right to condemn. And you are just as guilty of it as I am. I'm no different than you. No one in this room is any different than anyone else. We're all sinners. The only difference between us is where we've placed our hope. What we've looked to for salvation. And if you will look to Christ today, if you will turn in your heart, you don't have to do anything. It's the beauty of what the gospel is all about. You just have to believe. You just have to put all of your hope and trust in it. If you will turn to Christ today, live your life for Him, you too will be shown grace. One way or the other, you will acknowledge this is true. Either today in repentance, someday in the future here in repentance, or standing before Him in judgment. My desire for you, like Jesus has in this story, is that you would see the certainty of coming judgment and repent. To turn from their sins and to turn to Christ. Father, you know the hearts of each and every person in this room this morning. I have no clue. So many of us come in and out week in and week out. We see each other, but we don't know where people really are spiritually. Some in this room have placed their faith in Jesus. They, they have repented from their sins. They have turned to Christ. They are now living for Him. They are your children, Father. And they, yet they, they struggle. They fail. They sin. They doubt. They fear. Help them to see again this morning that the hope they have is not based in themselves. It is based in Jesus' death alone. It is only through His righteousness that we can be made righteous in relation to You. It's only by grace that we can be saved. We can never earn it or deserve it. We never will be able to. Help them to remember that, to rejoice in it, to cling to it, Lord. Those in here who are hurting this morning, who are doubting, help them cling to that truth with all their heart. There are others in the room this morning, Lord, no doubt, who have no intention of walking out of here today bowing their knee to you. Their hearts are hardened. They don't believe. They don't accept this truth. And yet, Lord, whether they accept it or not, whether they believe it or not, it is true. And I pray, Father, that you will take the truth of your word and penetrate those hard hearts. Remove the veil from off their eyes. Help them to see what they can't see on their own. Save them, Lord. Call them to Yourself. May they come in repentance and believe in You. May they find You to be the gracious God that we see here in Genesis 6, that we see throughout the Scriptures. May they come to know Your love and Your Lordship today. Father, this is the centrality of our being. This is the, the center point of who we are this truth that we've seen this morning, that we are sinners, that you are righteous, and yet in grace you're willing to save us if we believe in your Son. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it clear to us. Help us to remember it this week, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.